Welcome to the Biopractica Professional Podcast Series. Biopractica is an Australian-owned, practitioner-only brand focusing on nutritional and herbal products proven to play a role in preventative medicine. Biopractica is committed to supporting healthcare professionals in developing their knowledge and skills so they can confidently and effectively tackle the major health challenges facing their patients today. To support this commitment, the Learning Hub was established by Biopractica to offer practitioners a collection of educational resources so they can stay informed on the latest in health science research. Hello and welcome everyone to another amazing Biopractica podcast. We are looking at decoding vitamin D. So vitamin D is something people talk about all the time, but today I wanted to have a chat with my good friend, Claire. Claire, welcome back. Thank you very much, Paul. How are you today? I am feeling really well, which is uh, almost feels a little unusual to say on a cloudy, rainy day, but I am uh, absolutely feeling well. I have been dosing myself with vitamin D, um, attempting to achieve optimal levels, but I really thought perhaps today's a great time for us to chat about it a little bit because, of course, when it is raining, um, when it is darker, when days are shorter, vitamin D is definitely things people should be thinking about. Have you been seeing much uh, issue in clinic with vitamin D? Do you sort of notice a change in winter? Well, I am up in sunny Queensland here Mm -hmm. compared to you down south. So, I mean, yes, you know, we we still can see that dip, can't we, and that, that decline. And I think it can be a little bit of a paradigm shift in a country where we receive a lot of public health initiatives and information coming at us being like slip slop slap stay out of the sun stay out of the sun to then be like oh actually in winter I need to be increasing my sun exposure safely you know to be making sure I'm getting enough and that can be tricky for a lot of people and something that they can easily forget so yes you can see that drop off can't you absolutely do you get many patients who come in and may already actually have vitamin d testing done it's a bit common but I suppose not specifically, is it? We're kind of in the realm of advocating for our patients to go and get it tested. Like we see it pretty often, do we? But it's not super common to have a patient come in and get it. If you're seeing someone, you know, who's an otherwise healthy adult, it tends to not necessarily be the population group that they go to test right off the bat. Mm, So it can be very interesting, can't it? Like you can think, oh, look, I've got, you know, this healthy male or female here and then you can get a test back and it's like 20 nanomoles a liter and you're like what <laughs> we've got some work to do here yeah absolutely absolutely and, and look I, I will say uh, i probably do get my patients tested or i'm really interested in looking at their vitamin d levels especially when there's things like autoimmune complaints uh, you, you know there, there's something i'll say deeper going on there but you know and what my experience tends to be is yeah they tend to be lower but of course you know you don't just up someone's vitamin d and their autoimmune problem just disappears. So yeah. when, you know, let's speak briefly of numbers. So we know the reference range, or they basically say, what is it, above 50 is it nanomoles per litre is sufficiency? Nanomoles per litre, yes. Yep, that's what we use in Australia, whereas in America and a lot of the literature it can be nanograms per milliliter. Right. So I think that's kind of something for us to for people to keep in mind when you're reading literature, it can kind of jump between different numbers and you're like, whoa, that person's really deficient, but they're actually using a different unit of measurement. So yes, totally. We use nanomoles per litre. 
Mm, mm, absolutely. But look, you know, and I think it's really interesting when you do look at the tests, they just go, look, if you're over 50, you're fine. And that's it. Yeah. That, that's kind of where the guidance seems to end. You know, it, it seems like we're, we're sort of missing, you know, missing like but up to a certain amount is, is acceptable. And I, I guess, look, maybe we'll sort of chat about that as we uh, – as we continue our discussion today. So what what would you do if someone comes in and let's just say they have a vitamin D status and they happen to have a test and they've been told that they have 21 nanomoles per litre? Where, where, where do you sit as a practitioner? Do you sort of quickly uh, go and jab them with some kind of syringe with 900,000 IU? Or... <laughs> <laughs> do you even have these things in your clinic? Um... Do you? <laughs> I often wish I did, but no, no. no I've been banned, unfortunately. <laughs> so, so, so where do you sort of go with, with that? Yeah, I think, you know, in the last couple of years with the introduction of our active vitamin D, our calcifidiol, I think that's kind of changed things up a little bit for us as um, practitioners, hasn't it? Because previously we've only had our normal vitamin D supplementation, our coal calciferol, mm -hmm. and it still has to be activated or converted uh, through the liver into mm. the active calcifidiol and that's the one mm -hmm. that's getting tested in our blood so you mm -hmm. know we've kind of got a couple of options now in that if it's really low we want to come in probably with our calcifidiol to try and get that up quickly mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. we also know that that cold calciferol is more of a storage form of vitamin d and so it can even be nice if we are dealing with that patient that you're talking about that's super deficient to even be mm. potentially prescribing a bit of both over a period of time, you know, not forever, maybe like 12 weeks or something, 12, mm. 16 weeks and then retesting to mm. get storage happening, you know, building those levels up, but you're also providing the body with some of that active vitamin D to be helping that immune system, you know, the immune regulation, all the things that vitamin D does like right now, uh, which mm. I think mm. is really beneficial. What about you? Well, look, it's interesting. I actually have some patients that I may see that will have a blood test showing, you know, low D, low vitamin D, and it turns out they've been on a thousand IU a day for you know, six months, or you know, a, a long period of time, not 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 a matter of weeks. So you'd actually expect that it would be better. However, one other one thing that I've noticed when I look at all their bloods is a lot of these people actually have markers of fatty liver. And, and you did sort of mention there's the two kinds. There's the colocalciferol, which does need that conversion through the liver. And we know, obviously, if someone's got a fatty liver, well, their liver can't be really 100% on top of its game if they're, if they're mm -hmm. developing fatty liver. And so I, I do find it really interesting to, to see these people. They've had some supplementation. Now, I don't think 1,000 IU of colocalciferol is like a high dose, but I, I – I am surprised when I see people who've been on it, and I said, say six months, maybe even twelve months, and you know that they, they, they've got numbers like forty-five, which is still, according to what I believe to be a relatively low reference range, is quite low, and and certainly, and this really runs parallel to what you were saying, which is those are the people where I'm saying, well, what form of vitamin D am I using here to actually sort of really improve their vitamin D levels? Because it's almost like there's a missing piece of the puzzle. They're taking a supplement, but they're not really getting the benefit you might expect. And sure, it might have gone up from a reading of, you know, 
21, 12 months ago to 45, but you know, you, you, you would think that's better. Now, I, I know you and I have chatted in the past, and you did mention there was a bit of a rule of thumb, I think, with dosing for vitamin D. Mm. You were talking about, uh, I think, a 1,000 IUs and how much it's meant to raise uh, the nanomoles per litre. Do, do you want to just have a re-explain that for me, please? Yeah, so this is looking more at our coal calciferol. Uh, right. So the general rule of thumb that I've normally worked with is that uh, administering 1,000 IUs a day will mm-hmm. be working to raise a patient's vitamin D level by 25 points, so 25 nanomoles a litre, mm-hmm. over 12 weeks. So if right. we kind of work with that as a bit of a foundational equation, we then know that, okay, if I want to increase it by more than 25 nanomoles per litre mm-hmm. over 12 weeks, I've got to dose higher than that. Or if I want them to take it over a longer period of time, then I kind of need to factor in, okay, maybe I don't want to go too high because this is more of you know a maintenance thing for them. But that then also brings in the whole calcifediol conversation around it is absorbed three times better and so you know often in supplementation we see that the dose on paper doesn't look as high but it's kind of working more efficiently so maybe do you want to talk a little bit you know how how we then kind of married that up sure sure look absolutely and you know you're really spot on because if you do look at a calcifidol supplement you know there's 400 iu per capsule but, and, and this is, by the way, this is according to the research and the TGA, because, you know, I'll, I'll just for those of you who can't, who haven't, you know, kept it at the forefront of mind, TGA really does stipulate how much you can put into, uh, I'll call it an over-the-counter sort of product. And I think all practitioners know, and most people who actually take vitamin D know that generally you get it in, I'll call it 1,000 IU capsules, tablets, you know, whatever it may be. And that's the whole thing. With the calcifidiol, the TJ is basically saying you can't, you have to use only 400 IU per capsule because it, it really is absorbed and taken to the body and used roughly three times better, shall we say, than something like the cholecalciferol. So, and then, then there's actual data to show that within a month, that it actually still leads to higher levels of vitamin D on blood tests as well. So I, I do think you've got a bit of a, you know, supplementation. Firstly, okay, everyone's different. Everyone's unique. We have to understand why they have low vitamin D, if they have low vitamin D. And I think we might even find that, you know, you might use something like calcifidol for a couple of months just really to build those levels up. Mm. But as you rightfully mm. pointed out before, the cholecalciferol is more the form that is often stored and stored in the body and is then released and used by the body when it needs it. So I think sometimes, certainly if we, if we see low vitamin D and we go, we've got to get this up. So I mentioned, for example, you know, cases of autoimmune disease. I would say if someone has an autoimmune disease and if they have a uh, reading of 25 when it comes to their vitamin D blood test, I would want to increase that up to 50 or 60 or or possibly higher, which we'll chat about in just a second, relatively quickly. And I want to go as far, though, as to say I'm not a fan of the concept of 
heroic dosing. So heroic dosing, you know, and I think we see this as, I'll say, complementary medicine practitioners. And then when we look at a lot of integrative GPs, they go, you've got deficiency. Well, I've got to jam as much as I can into you Hmm. really quickly, you know, so like 50,000 IU doses and you've got to take, you know, one of those every week or every fortnight for for a period of time. And I, I just don't think... For me, that's very pharmaceutical in the style. It's like, God, deficiency. We're going to jam so much in there. You can't be deficient. But it's not really, I'll say naturopathic as such in its approach, you know. Um, And I often say to patients that, you know, with a plant that desperately needs water but the soil around is so dry, you can just tip 100 litres of water there. But 88 litres just runs off. You, you know, yeah. and I wonder sometimes if just giving mega doses of vitamin D, you're not actually getting uh, that that benefit, that absorption benefit. So, do you see many patients that have, you know, or have had success or no success with that really high dosing? Yeah, I think it's you know, and it can happen with other fat soluble vitamins as well, like your vitamin mm. A. I suppose more so, it can kind of these really big heroic doses. And I wonder whether mm. it was also a bit of a naturopathic phase or that was kind of in vogue maybe in like 10 15 20 years ago where that kind of went real like nutraceuticals were really kind of hitting their stride like I don't tend to see it get used as much anymore I kind of maybe feel like that methodology isn't as popular as it used to be and like you said it is quite a pharmaceutical model and to that point before that you said about oh does my patient have like a bit of fatty liver is there a bit of metabolic stuff going on are they autoimmune you know and this to me a big underpinning of that is their gut stuff going on like that's such a common patient presentation that we see if we're going to supply a huge huge amount of vitamin d which will be the cholecalciferol you know it's what classically medicine would still be using it requires the liver to convert it it requires the gut to absorb it like where is that really to me the most efficient way to mm-hmm. be providing if, if that's going to be their one dose that they're going to receive in a month. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know <laughs> versus mm. I don't necessarily agree with that in comparison to using something like your calciferol, like you said, maybe for mm-hmm. a couple of months first, let's really get those levels up, then come in mm-hmm. with a more kind of maintenance dose of your calciferol, kind of using that rule of thumb of a thousand I use 25 points over 12 weeks. You know, I can kind of keep chipping away at it at the background and maybe I'm working on the fatty liver. I'm working on the fat metabolism, working on the gut function, you know, and and we kind of, we can maybe get into some troubleshooting stuff a bit later on. But yeah, I agree with you there that I think kind of doing those more moderate daily doses, like maybe you are doing 3,000, 5,000 IUs equivalent, um, whether you're using an active or active, you know, for a period of time is going to be maybe a bit more efficient and a bit more kind of aligned with, naturopathic philosophy like you mentioned before so i i just uh, found uh, some data where they actually looked at uh, vitamin d levels with calcifidol compared to i'll call it regular vitamin d3 and what they found was when they used the cholecalciferol or regular d3 we'll call it they found that at 20 micrograms per day the mean sufficient level was not reached after 16 weeks okay so they used yeah the 20 micrograms, that's not IU, 20 micrograms per day. 16 weeks, they still didn't have the sufficient level. Calcifidile at 10 micrograms or half the amount of D3, the mean sufficient level was reached in six weeks. 
mm. which is, is huge, which is absolutely huge. Yeah. And, and also tells me that I want people to get their blood tests done sooner. If, if I'm going to use things like calcifidiol, I can probably get them to try and get another test in a month or in, you know, in eight weeks, because otherwise I think traditionally vitamin D testing, I've often said to people, oh, look, you know, three months, six months, yeah. you know, but I think with, if you're going to use supplement like calcifidiol, you can actually get that testing, not can, you probably should actually get that testing done sooner mm. to really try and understand, you know, what, what sort of role or how, how that's going. Yeah, how far it's got you in like that six or eight week period. And especially if we're dealing with someone who was frankly deficient or if they mm -hmm. have high kind of need or risk factors, like mm. if there's any kind of bone issue, you know, if we're mm -hmm. dealing with postmenopausal woman, if we're dealing with mm. someone who has a large amount of immune dysregulation, like autoimmunity, it's like, okay, we don't really have like lots of time to spend like the next six, eight months, right. you know, let's try and get it up. Mm. Like you said, it's like, okay, well, let's do this. And six weeks later, let's see see how far we've mm. got it up and how much further we have to go. Like I think that's oh, that's very useful clinically, isn't it, mm. to kind of know that we are going to be impacting something in a much shorter time frame. Absolutely. Look, I, I know I've had patients in the past where I've thought, okay, I'm going to put them on, we'll just say 2,000 IU a day. And, you know, as I said, after three months or six months, I'm thinking, no, 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 this person's level should be better. But they're not always better. They're not always better. Mm -hmm. You know, some, sometimes it's just, I'll say, disappointing. So are there any sort of cofactors you either look at or consider if you do want to improve vitamin D levels for, for your patients? Do you sort of say, oh, gosh, maybe they're low in? I think this is an important conversation. Hey, like I think um, kind mm. of due to those TGA regulations and such, you often f you can often find vitamin D kind of in – a supplement all of itself, you know, like we all, it's very common within our profession, but then it's like, okay, well, nothing kind of acts in isolation in the body, does it? No. And a very core thing that is interrelated with vitamin D is actually magnesium. That's probably the first mm -hmm. cofactor that migraine goes mm -hmm. to. All of those enzymes that are kind of moving vitamin D down its, down its pathway, like metabolizing and activating it, they all require magnesium. And so it's really needing to, magnesium is really required to help activate that vitamin D because even if we are giving calcifidiol, it still needs to go one more activation step in the kidney mostly at that point to convert into the full activated vitamin D. Another one is zinc. So a mm. lot of vitamin D dependent yep. genes rely on zinc to exert their function. Uh, vitamin A is another interesting one too yeah. because it works kind of in tandem with that vitamin D receptor, being right. that that vitamin D receptor, when the vitamin D binds to it, has a very big effect on DNA transcription, like turning on and off mm -hmm. different genes, et cetera, and it's working in tandem with vitamin A receptor to mm -hmm. do that. So there are some key ones that I'd be thinking of. Do you have any? You want to add? Oh, look, I, I, I was going to say, you know, and, and you sort of really, you know, I think we're, we're getting, you know, I like, I like the fact you mentioned vitamin A. I absolutely think things like A, D, E, K. I often see people that just have issues with fat-soluble mm. vitamins. And I'm sure we've, we've both come across those patients who still absolutely live by the belief of fat is bad. No fat. Mm. Don't eat any fat. Don't eat any fat. And, you know, look, obviously there's a whole heap of different bad fats out there that people really shouldn't be having in their diet. 
But, you know, there are fat-soluble vitamins. And I think if you just starve yourself of, of quality fats and oils, you know, you, you – you, and I, I don't have the specific data on it, but you, you mess with the pathways of fat-soluble vitamins in your body full stop. And, yeah. uh, you know, as you said, vitamin A helping with the um, vitamin D receptor function, you know. So I, I tend to sort of like the concept sometimes of looking at other fat-soluble vitamins or it then gets me looking at their diet. Do they have like a really skewed diet where they believe all fat is bad, they don't have any fat? And, of course, then the next thing it leads me to is, so what's happening with your gallbladder? Oh, by the way, do you still have a gallbladder? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> because Time and time again now, people with, you know, years ago you say, oh, yeah, look, if you've got to have your gallbladder out, you've got to have it out. Oh, yeah, it's not too bad. But I'll say the repercussions I've seen over years of practice is actually that it makes it much harder for people to maintain mm. <clears throat> the healthy fat-soluble vitamin levels. You know, it, it, it's more of a juggling act for them, whereas if you've got your gallbladder, it's not, not so hard. Yeah, and I think that dietary factor that you talked about earlier it got me thinking as well there's kind of that double-edged sword of like you're not eating your fats that help to absorb your fat soluble mm -hmm. vitamins that might be present in other food sources but our healthy fats that have been very demonized kind of maybe like eggs grass-fed butter all those things they contain vitamin d in them and and food sources of vitamin d you know can be a very important piece of the puzzle especially in a country like australia where we most of the population live in our southern states and we have issues with dropping vitamin d levels over winter but we also have like i said before that super strong public health messaging around don't go out in the sun don't expose yourself to the sun it's like you know, let alone if someone's just living a very normal life, let alone in the more southern end of this country where they wake up, they go to work, they sit in an office all day and then they go home, you're not receiving adequate sunlight exposure at all, really. So, um, yeah, I think that dietary element, that fat-soluble vitamin element is so important and I think this vitamin D, having the cofactor of vitamin A, um, Literature will also discuss vitamin K too and that, you know, once you're kind of absorbing all this calcium and vitamin D is helping that, you really then need vitamin K2 to tell it where to go. Like you don't want that calcium to be accumulating in vasculature or anything. So it's like they're all working together. Of course, you know, and vitamin D, I think even looking at it from a cofactor perspective is a pretty good example of that, isn't it? Look, and I guess though uh, when I'm thinking of a patient, so, you know, let's assume that they have, you know, some kind of health condition, vitamin D, low vitamin D level is associated with that health condition, is that, and I, I think this is part of our conversation, is that fine, okay, and I might even choose the really absorbable form, the calcifidiol. But then again, I still need to make sure that in their diet, as you said, that they do have things like, you know, a certain grass-fed meats and things like that as well mm -hmm. that, you know, we, we can't, even though supplementation seems to be the answer, it's a piece of the puzzle and, and, mm. and we need to keep all of those aspects there. And I mean, as I said, of course, low vitamin D levels, yep, sure, supplement with vitamin D. I'm really glad you brought up sunlight exposure because if my mother listened to this and I didn't bring up sunlight exposure, I would be in a lot of trouble. Um, <laughs> me too, actually. <laughs> she, she would not be happy with me at all. What are you doing just talking about supplements? But, you know. but let's be honest, some people work in buildings where they can't get sunlight exposure. As you said, 
depending geographically on where you are in our country, that's going to do uh, impact it as well. But, you know, one of the things I really like reminding people of, and, you know, it seems to me that a lot of people do it, is they'll go and spend the day at the beach or outdoors and then they get home and they have a shower. And, mm. and you know, what what is absolutely known has been well established is that I'll call it excessive showering. I mean, I'm not sure how much is excessive. <laughs> it's got to be put into yeah. context. <laughs> But the excessive showering, or basically if you are in the sun during the day, and, you know, even if you're just wearing a T-shirt, so, you know, not full body exposure, but good good exposure, actually then going and having a shower after that is going to remove a whole heap of the precursors that your body would use for vitamin D. And I, I think it's important. That, and as I said, you know, how do I put it? Some patients just have a belief that I've been to the beach, I must have a shower, or I've been outside, I must have a shower. And I think sometimes our, our job as naturopaths is just to remind people that that might have a negative benefit. And perhaps there's a different way they can maintain their very good hygiene standards, but not mm. necessarily have such a detrimental effect on uh, vitamin D levels. And I, I wonder, and I've heard it discussed before, is there that being that vitamin D is that fat soluble and it's kind of activating, et cetera, on the skin? Like if there's someone then, you know, does a does the classic like lather up with the body wash that we're all told that we like have to use, you know, and then it's kind of washing that off and they're doing that twice a day. It's like... Mm. Yeah, if you're a tradie, like I, I've heard it multiple times, like, you know, across mm-hmm. my time as a practitioner, someone's like, I'm, I'm, I'm a tradie, you know, I'm out in the sun all the day. How am I vitamin D deficient? And it's like, oh, there's a lot of reasons as to why this could be a thing, you know, and, and that could definitely be one aspect of it that like, mm. yeah, you get home, you have a shower straight away and it's like, it's gone. That's right. That's right. Mm. right. Mm. Your body doesn't even really have a couple of hours to metabolize some of it, you know, or or, or Mm. if you're a tradie and you're you're on the job site and then you go to the gym after that. And of course, after Mm. that, you're going to have a shower. So uh, there really are a whole range. (laughs) It's usually some some of them I wish they showered before they got to the gym, but that's another story. That's that's not something for talk about now because we are almost out of time even though this is a great topic and a really important topic now when we were chatting about this before you mentioned something about apps to help people kind of work out if they had enough Mm. sunlight exposure or how much sunlight exposure what what did you sort of find when you went looking there this is a very it's been very timely reminder for me actually you know for all of us moving into winter i was researching it then realized i had already downloaded one and used it many moons ago (laughs) so uh, there are apps that can basically do a lot of the legwork or do sums that like we couldn't do anyway that factor in a whole bunch of parameters that then tell you based on how much you're wanting to either maintain or increase your vitamin D level, how long you should spend in the sun. So um, two that I know of, the one that I have is called D Minder. So there's a space between that, D Space Minder. And then I think there's another one called Sunday, one word, but yeah. But the D Minder, when I went back in there, it asks you when you're setting it up, what's your skin type? So are you, you know, super fair, can't like you never tend, you just burn, you know, all the way down right. to a much darker skin tone, you know, very hard mm. to kind of sunburn. Your location geographically, your altitude, how overcast it is, wow. you know, on this particular day, the level or percentage of skin exposure that you're able to have. So you kind of like out on, you know, in your back backyard, like full kit off, or are you just like arms exposed on your lunch break kind of thing? So, so this can give you a day-by-day 
idea of how much sun you need today, we'll say. Yeah, and then it will say based on your kind of location, etc., and the overcast levels, it will actually then show you it's between these hours that this optimal vitamin D level sun is occurring. And based mm. on your skin tone and vitamin D level and your goals, this is how long you should actually spend in the sun. And so right. it's quite interesting because for me, I feel like I went in there and I kind of punched in some levels that it was like, I do kind of need like a good 20, 30 minutes of sun exposure. Mm. And like, that's already beyond what you know, Cancer Council is telling people to do and yet that's how much, yeah. you know, but it's kind of like getting it in the safe zone and I think this is what's mm -hmm. really interesting. The sunlight, you know, is UVA and UVB. Mm -hmm. UVA mm -hmm. is consistent throughout the day whereas UVB builds in the day and that's the one that can really contribute mm -hmm. to burning the skin, like the sunburn, but mm -hmm. it, it has that peak time kind of between like the 10 till 2 or the 10 till 4 kind of situation. So like I was saying before, if you're someone who even likes to sit out on your back deck and have a cup of tea early mm -hmm. in the morning before you go to work, you're actually mm -hmm. getting a predominant of UVA light, not UVB. Right. And UVB mm -hmm. is what we need to produce vitamin D, not mm -hmm. the UVA. And so mm -hmm. it's all of these things that we can, like you said, supplementation is great, but sun exposure is another thing we can kind of just be like, oh, get some sun. It's like, well, if we want it's someone's diet and lifestyle to take over from supplementation yeah. once we reach optimal levels, there's actually like quite a bit to it, you know, and, and, and something like this app I think can just like take all of the, you know, considerations out and do it for you. Well, it's, it's interesting you say that though, because that then reminds me, you know, low, low, if you don't have sufficient cholesterol, if you have very low levels of cholesterol, you'll probably have lower levels of vitamin D, yeah. you know, and, and that's the thing, you know, should we be, well, of course we should be asking all our patients, are you on statins or, or at least mm -hmm. finding out if they're, they're taking any cholesterol lowering substances or, or medications. But uh, I think that's the thing that there, there are so many facets to this. There, there truly, truly are. And, but, you know, I kind of feel good about it because at least it helps me understand why there are those people I see that have been on supplementation for mm. six months and it hasn't seemed it, – it's shown some improvement. Do you, do you know what I mean? They're certainly mm. – sure, they're not on 20 or 21, but they're, they're not really smashed they're, – they're not on 80. You know, they're, they're, not, <laughs> they're not 85 or 100, yeah. which is where, where I like yeah. to see my patients. From what I've seen, 80 yeah. to 100 is about – you know, at that level, you you probably don't have a lot to, I'll say, worry about, if you know what I mean. There's other stuff you could be doing rather than just supplementing vitamin D if that's where patients are at. Mm, yeah. And so, yeah, we were kind of brainstorming, weren't we? Like what what are the factors that we can think of or that are kind of reflective in research for why someone could be on this kind of ongoing okay level of supplementation and it's just not really picking up and so things that we've talked about gut function is that absorption not happening is there an issue with liver function in terms of i would say fat mm -hmm. metabolism but also those cyp enzymes that are involved in kind of active activating and taking vitamin d down that next step are we dealing mm -hmm. with a diabetic or an older patient who has mm -hmm. kidney issues like that converting it into that full active vitamin D is re really required by the kidneys there. That poor dietary intake of fat, low cholesterol, mm. like you said, the genetic mutations. So we know you can do something mm. like a 23andMe and see does someone have a mutation with their vitamin D receptor, like that can really start mm. to come into it. And then I think it's that, that, that sun exposure 
like that mm. UVA, UVB thing is really interesting to me as well because your optimal absorption or um, creation of vitamin D on the skin is going to happen when you get a healthy level of UVB exposure without burning. And like you, like the culture that we have in Australia is that you you could just go to the beach for hours or like you're the trainee mm. that works outside all day and it's like this is the finesse part of it for me when I was reading this and kind of putting it together. I was like, well, it's so easy in Australia to just push past that healthy level, you know, being outside. Mm. If you're a trainee that works outside all day and they're like, I'm in the sun yeah. all day. Why am I vitamin D deficient? It's like your skin's probably mm. past the point of healthy vitamin D, you know, UVB exposure and therefore vitamin D production, like an hour mm. into the day. And so, um, yeah, very fascinating. You know, this kind of dance between what's the absorption liver doing? What's the sun exposure doing? What's the diet doing? And therefore, what do we need to do with the supplementation and potentially what kind of re-education needs to be happening around vitamin D creation in this person's lifestyle, I would say. Look, and, and I think the other thing to remember is you can have too much vitamin D, like many things. You can actually have too much and, and it can be damaging for people. And that's why, you know, in, in our discussion, we are still saying, well, look, you still need tests. You want to see mm. what's happening to the individual. And it doesn't matter, I guess, whether you want to see what their vitamin D level is like after they've altered their lifestyle, after they've changed their diet, after, you know, they've got been on supplements, whatever. We, we, we still need to keep an eye on that. And, uh, you know, I, I guess see how their body is going because, you know, as we said, there's the cofactors as well. There's the magnesium, the zinc, mm. vitamin A. We, we spoke of K2. You know, we, we spoke of those cofactors as well, which I think really, you know, all need to be put into the, I'll call it a recipe. All mm. these factors and things need to be put in a recipe to have a successful, I'll call it outcome, uh, or a successful vitamin D level. Mm, which is yeah absolutely fundamental to health claire that is all we have time for it is time for me to hop back into clinic today actually so mm -hmm. i i do apologize for cutting things short but but i guess look to just sum up our conversation or i'll try to sum up our conversation the form of vitamin d that people are supplementing with will be important we know that calcifidiol does increase those vitamin d levels more effectively we need to, and you know, I, I think we had a nice chat about lifestyle factors, but the fact that there's a number of different ones, and, and even just in our chat, we managed to sort of identify that where you are, the time of the day, your exposure to UVA versus UVB are all really important. That people need to look at genetic markers because that could be an issue where you just can't expect to see someone get to, you know, a reference range of 100 uh, nanomoles per litre. What else? Is there anything else I've missed there? I think you're kind of covering it off. Yeah, cofactors, internal, you know, digestive absorption, liver-based markers, mm. sun-based factors. Yep. Yeah, they're probably the key ones. Key ones. Look, and I, I just want to finish off, though, is that remember every patient is different. And there's mm. so many variables mm. and there's individuals and that people all respond differently to different supplements for a whole variety of reasons that we've looked at and talked about. And that as long as I think you're tracking their vitamin D levels, you know, if you, if you listen again to what we've just spoken of today, you'll get ideas on things you can do to tweak that. But ultimately as a practitioner, especially I think if you are giving a supplement, you know, we really do need to make sure that people are, uh, having, you know, timely testing so uh, mm. they, they can have optimal vitamin D levels. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's actually quite a lot of things you can start to look at 
if you're testing them and after a couple of tests you're like oh i'm supplementing here it's not really picking up like there's actually Mm -hmm. you can kind of put on your detective hat and look at quite a few things that we've kind of gone through today that could be causing it but also like that genetic aspect that you talked about is Mm -hmm. this person you know do we kind of just really need to stay on top of it and i've tested it a bunch of times now and i can see they're just not a great responder potentially to supplementation you know, now I know that, like, I think your somewhat regular testing is quite a good point and a good takeaway as well, especially if you're doing that active vitamin D supplementation. Perfect. Claire, Mm. thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, sit down and have a chat with me. And also thank you to everyone who's decided to tune in and learn a little bit more about vitamin D. Yes. Thank you very much. All right. Well, I look forward to chatting again with you soon, Claire, and I hope everyone else can tune in for our next podcast. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye. To continue the conversation or find out more about our products and educational resources, please head to biopractica.com.au. Biopractica, empowering healthcare professionals.